welcome. Thank you for listening. We're currently working our way through the book of Joshua, celebrating the God who keeps every promise he has ever made. If you're in the Milwaukee area and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to meet you. You can connect with us more through our website, harvestcommunity.org. Chapter 24 of Joshua. Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem and summoned Israel's elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived by the, beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father from the region beyond the Euphrates River, led him through the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave the hill country of Seir to Esau as a possession. Jacob and his sons, however, went down to Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron, and I defeated Egypt by what I did within it, and afterward brought it out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, and you reached the Red Sea, the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen as far as the sea. Your ancestors cried out to the Lord, so he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea over them, engulfing them. Your own eyes saw what I did to Egypt. After that, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Later, I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived beyond the Jordan. They fought against you, but I handed them over to you. You possessed their land, and I annihilated them before you. Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, I repeat, he repeatedly blessed you, and I rescued you from him. You then crossed the Jordan and came to the Jericho. Jericho's citizens, as well as the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hethites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites fought against you, but I handed them over to you. I sent hornets ahead of you, and they drove out the two Amorite kings before you. It was not by your sword or bow. I gave you land that you did not labor for, cities that you did not build, though you live in them. You are eating from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and worship the Lord. But if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today. Which will you worship? The gods of your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? As for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. The people replied, We will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods, for the Lord our God brought us and our ancestors out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, and performed these great signs before our eyes who lived in the land. We too will worship the Lord, because he is our God. But Joshua told the people, You will not be able to worship the Lord, because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. If you abandon the Lord and worship foreign gods, he will turn against you, harm you, and completely destroy you after he has been good to you. No, the people answered Joshua, we will worship the Lord. 
Joshua then told the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you yourselves have chosen to worship the Lord. We are witnesses, they said. Then get rid of the foreign gods that are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people said to Joshua, We will worship the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people at Shechem and established a statute and ordinance for them. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He also took a large stone and set it there under the oak of the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, You see this stone? It will be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words the Lord said to us, and it will be a witness against you so that you will not deny your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, the Lord's servant, Joshua, son of Nun, died the age of 110. They buried him in an allotted territory at Tinnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetime of the elders who outlived Joshua and who had experienced all the works the Lord had done for Israel. Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the parcel of land Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it was an inheritance for Joseph's descendants. And Eleazar, son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, which had been given to his son Phinehas in the hill country of Ephraim. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray today. God, we thank you so very much for what you are doing here at Harvest. We thank you, God, for your presence here and how we can learn from your spirit and what you are wanting to teach us. Please anoint uh, Caleb to be able to speak your words and communicate your truths to us who desperately need to know it. If we truly are um, having the same attitude as the Israelites, wanting to worship and serve the Lord, then we will obviously take time to listen and to pull in all of the things that are said this morning. We pray everything is, is part of what you want, and we pray your blessing on it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, Aaron, for serving us in that way. We can't study the book of Joshua without reading the book of Joshua. So thank you, Aaron, for serving us in that way. This is our final sermon in the book of Joshua. We have been here since the beginning of September, I believe. And here we are at chapter 24, the close. And God takes the platform and addresses his people in a message that I believe will be powerful for us today, not just listening in on history, but for us today. The idea of the self-made man or self-made person is an American myth that we love. The idea of like the lone hero or the self-made business person is something that we, we love. We love to celebrate specifically as Americans in contrast to um, many countries that I've traveled to throughout the world that are much more community-driven. We love the lone hero, the self-made person. And it's indeed exciting to um, think uh, yesterday uh, was, would have been Steve Jobs' birthday, February 24th, to think that Apple computers started in his parents' garage, I believe, in 1976 is stunning. 
the fact that like the device that I wrote the sermon on and the other device that I'm reading the sermon from uh, were both had its origins in a garage in California in the 70s is remarkable. The idea of people being solely responsible for things is something that we're drawn to not just in um, technology or business, but also in sports, and it kind of drives the movies we're drawn to as well, especially if you were um, some form of a child of the 80s, as I was. The action hero movies always revolved around Rambo um, or some singular character. We love to cheer on Giannis. We love the fact that Giannis had his origins on the streets of Greece and now dominates the entire game of basketball from our city in Milwaukee, and we, we love studying the book of Joshua and seeing people like Joshua, it feels like he almost has the nation on his back as he crosses the Jordan River boldly going against all odds in his leadership. We love this. We love that story. But the myth of the self-made person, it really is just that. It's a myth. It's a story. And it doesn't always hold up. For instance, Steve Jobs wasn't alone in his parents' garage. He was with Steve Wozniak putting together the very first boards for the computer. I might add, and I'm stealing this whole content uh, from Malcolm Gladwell, so just footnote him as you listen to me here in his book, The Outliers. Not only was Steve Jobs not alone, but he, along with all the other tech millionaires and would-be billionaires, had to be born in a very specific window in the 1950s, centered around 1955, there's a magical window of 18 months where all of the uh, tech millionaires and founders would all be born in. You see, they needed to be around to have their hands first on the computer when it came into their high school. They needed to be able to study the computer as, as one of the first in their field when they got to college. And then after, they founded great companies like Dell and Hewlett-Packard and the greatest of them, Apple. But it wasn't Steve Jobs alone in his garage. And as much as I love Giannis, watching Giannis play is a powerful and beautiful thing. I have never watched a Bucks game where Giannis has won one on five He's always been surrounded by a team of people that I love almost just as much, like Chris Middleton and Bobby Portis and others. And Joshua, we have seen, if you remember, all the way back in chapter one, he was only successful because he was called by the Lord. He was given promises by the Lord specifically that the Lord would be with Joshua every step of the way. Joshua was successful because the Lord was with him. And so the myth of the self-made person really is more than a myth. It's a lie. And yet we consume it every day. I I don't know what sorts of things pop onto your social media feeds. Uh, Maybe it's because I'm in leadership. But every day there are like reels or videos of these cheesy influencers who use words, these are not my words, but there's a, that it's all about the grind or the hustle, and if you want to be like them, and there's actually funny accounts that make fun of these people, I believe appropriately so. 
and, and it's all about them. And if you want to be a millionaire like them, you got to be doing these things. If you want to have the things that they have, you got to do the things um, that they do. They may even quick to remind you that you don't have the things you have because you're not willing to do the things um, that they do. This idea of a self-made person is really a lie. We know that in Scripture, pride goes before a fall. And we know that from 1 John, all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away in all of these things. So this morning, in contrast to this, I have better news from Joshua's final chapter, chapter 24. I have a truer story I have a better story, one that applies not just to the first audience in Joshua 24, but to each of us here today. The point of all those verses in Joshua 24 comes down to this. We are here by grace alone to worship him alone. The title of the sermon is Choose Today, and I'm bringing before you a choice and an invitation to choose today to by grace alone Worship him alone. By grace alone describes the first section as we dive into Joshua 24, verses 1 through 13. God concludes the book of Joshua by reminding the people on this page in the first audience and us here today that the story of Joshua and Israel is the story of God. If you remember last week, I know some of you were here last week or maybe you caught up online in some fashion. Um, Last week was a big deal because in Joshua 23, Joshua takes to the stage and says, I'm about to die and I have a message for you. And I know in the room as we discussed this, there was like a palpable feeling of like, well, what did he say? If you follow Joshua from being a spy to being chosen by the Lord in Joshua 1 and all the feats of the book of Joshua, we want to hear on his deathbed, as it were, what he has to say. Well, this morning... It moves from Joshua to something greater because on Joshua, in Joshua 24, verse 2, the Lord steps up to the podium and the words of verse 2 are, thus saith the Lord. Look at Joshua 24, verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel said, end quote. The first half of the content for this morning is what the Lord said to Israel. God doesn't give them new revelation here. We're kind of wondering, like, well, what is the Lord going to say? They've gone on this whole journey. Obviously, they are west of the Jordan River, and they're about to settle into their inherited land. And before Joshua dismisses them to settle into the inherited places of their land, the Lord takes the stage. And what he does is in chapter 24, the Lord is going to take them through their own story. But what he's doing is he's retelling a story that they already know, but he's recasting himself as the primary character. So the Lord takes them all the way back to the origins of Abraham, Abraham's father. 
and then through Egypt, through some of their wandering, and then to the present day on the other side of the Jordan, all things that these people who they didn't have like books of recorded history with them, they really lived in an oral tradition of hearing audibly the great stories of generations past. They knew better than we do the story of Abraham. They, they celebrated at least weekly the deliverance in Egypt. They knew their story, and yet God, taking the podium with a chance to speak to his people directly, chooses to retell their story. And so we want to, as we hear it this morning, just ask why. What is God doing when he's retelling the story? God begins in verses 1 through 13 with a message of calling Abraham. When God calls Abraham in verses 2 and 3, he talks about his father. Look at verse 2. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. When you see gods in the Bible with a small g, this is like idols, who the culture around you, the godless culture tells you to rely on, that's the small g gods. Whether they're explicit like idols or other religions or just place your dependence here and not on the one true God the origins of God's people were in worshiping other gods. What's fascinating about this is God is telling his people that I did not come to you as faithful people. I didn't look around the whole earth and, and look for a faithful people, look for people who already had it all together, a people who were worshiping exclusively the one true God. I came to you when you were worshiping false gods. I came to you with your false idols. I came to you with your misplaced hope. I came to you in all of your brokenness in sin. God wants his people to know first and foremost in recasting the story of Abraham that we are in relationship to God by grace alone. God's primary claim in coming to the people of God is that I have founded a relationship with you by grace alone. What is this mean? This means that I didn't come to you because you deserved it. I didn't come to you because you are worthy. I came to you because of my grace alone. That's verses two and three. God then recasts the story of Egypt in the second half of verse four, in five, in six, in seven. God turns and addresses the time his people spent in Egypt. God describes their time in history with these phrases. God says, I sent, I plagued what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. God then says, after the people cried out to the Lord in Egypt, God then describes what happened next to his people. God said, I then put darkness between you and your enemy. And when you came to the edge of the Red Sea and there seemed to be no way forward, I parted the Red Sea and I then let you across and closed the sea in on your enemies. God is recasting the singular most famous story that his people have always held dear. Just turn to the middle of your Bible and you'll be in the Psalms. Turn to any Bible and you'll be in the Psalms and the Psalms are replete with examples of the people worshiping God because of his deliverance expressed in Egypt. Why is God retelling them a story they already know? Because he needs to recast 
himself as the primary character, and he wants his people to know that to follow God in the newness of life on the other side of the Red Sea is to do so by his power alone. God comes to us by grace alone. God then saves us by his power alone. Verses 9 and 10 and 11 recount a story not so famous, that of King Balak and Balaam the prophet. I am going to guess that there are people in this room who have no clue who Balak is and who Balaam is. Maybe some of you have heard a reference of a talking donkey in scripture. That goes, that's tied to this story. Basically, during the people's wilderness wandering, there was a king of another nation, Balak, who wanted God's people cursed. And so he paid a prophet, Balaam, to go up to a high place and to to stand over looking God's people and to pronounce a curse on these people. And every time he tried, it was multiple attempts, and no matter how much money he gave him, he couldn't buy a cursing for God's people. Every time Balaam stood up to prophesy, he was under the Lord's power, and he ended up blessing God's people so that what Balak the king meant for evil against God's people ended up being a blessing. And so God takes this story of Balak and Balaam and brings it before the people to say, listen, you are preserved by my protection alone. Not only are you saved through no merit of your own by grace alone, you're saved by my power alone. You are preserved in my protection alone. And finally, in verses 11 and 12, and 13. And even the, that last chunk, did you, if you were listening to Aaron read, it got to the end and we had basically three funerals. We buried Joshua. He was 110 when he died. They had been carrying with them the bones of Joseph. That's how they got to Egypt. God used Joseph to preserve the God's people in Egypt before they were enslaved there. They carried the bones of Joseph, who also died when he was 110, with them. They bury Joseph and they bury Eliezer, the son of Aaron. What is with the three burials at the end? Well, the whole book so far has been about land. That may not sound exciting, but Joshua has had a theme all the way through it of land. From chapter one, God says, I'm going to call you Joshua. I believe it's, it's chapter one and verse two. The Lord says to Joshua, go over into the land that I'm giving them. Midway through the book, God then calls Joshua to divvy up the inheritance to each tribe, including those cities of refuge. It's all about the land, and the book ends with God, before they go inherit their land and settle down, burying significant people at perfect rest in their land. Joshua, 110, laid to rest in his inheritance. Joseph, the bones of Joseph, who perished at 110, at 110 years old, laid to rest in inherited land. The priesthood rests in the land. What is this saying? Well, in explaining all this, God uses these phrases. He carefully describes their time as, I gave the enemies into your hand. I sent. It was not by your sword or bow. The theme of every promise kept 
relates to the land and proves that God is faithful and imparts to the people that not only are they saved by his grace alone and power alone and preserved by his protection alone, they are sustained by his provision alone. As we sing in the hymn, great is thy faithfulness, all I have needed, your hand has provided, or incomplete in thee, no work of mine may take the Lord Dear, may take the place, dear Lord, of thine. Or second verse, complete in thee each want supplied and no good thing to me denied. We are sustained by God's provision alone. You see, Israel needed their story recast with God as the central character, similar to when at the end of Job, God speaks to Job. Job 38, the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, He says, get ready to answer me like a man. And God literally pins Job to the wall with these questions. Let me read you a couple. I didn't do this in the first service, but you guys have all day and this this sermon can run long and and you guys are cool with it. She slept in, so. He asked him these questions. Who fixed its dimensions? Referring to the sky. Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Hey, Job, what supports its foundations or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who told the ocean you can come this far, but when you get to the shore, here shall your proud waves be stayed? Where were you, Job? Where do you keep the rain, Job? Where do you keep the hail? Who's in charge of the sky? In this fashion, God comes to Israel and said, the story you've been telling yourselves is true, but it has the wrong central character. I'm the center of your story. You were here by my grace alone. This should produce humility in your life. You're saved by my power alone. This should produce dependence in your life. You only continue by my protection alone. This should decimate fear in your life. And you're sustained along the way by my provision alone. This should make us massively generous people towards each other. You see, we tend to use phrases, even in 2024, like, my walk with God, my story, my journey. But we would be best to begin telling our stories the way God tells our story. That we continue in this life because of God. From beginning to end, my story is told by his grace and power and protection and provision. All glory be to him. And we are driven to humility. Our judgment of one another is decimated because I was nothing but undeserving when God found me. I have no higher footing than anyone in this room. God found each of us in our brokenness and sin and continues to sustain each of us in our imperfection by his power. God, being the central character of our stories, should produce very humble, dependent, and charitable people towards one another. 
We're tempted to posture ourselves as self-made people and we feel the pressure to present ourselves as having it all together. And I personally have found that burden exhausting, fear-inducing, and anxiety-fueling. I'm here this morning to say that ultimately your relationship with God is only founded on God. Your continuing with God is all about God. And that your daily sustaining, just pause one, let's take, we take no time of silence in our lives, hardly. Just take two seconds of silence and I want you to notice a breath and a heartbeat. Ready? According to Colossians 1, Jesus Christ holds everything together. That breath and heartbeat was a gift from God. And so ultimately my health isn't under the direction of my physician and my mental health is not ultimately the product of my therapist, but all that I am is sustained day by day by God. And my reliance is on him. Does God give gifts to his people and beautiful, wonderful tools? Thank God he does. But if you're carrying a burden this morning, as I often do, that your well-being in life is ultimately up to you, I, I would invite you this morning to lay it down and surrender it to him by whom all things were made and are sustained. Because we haven't lived this way, we've cast our own selves as the center of our story and we've lost the wonder of grace. The second and last movement in our text today and in the whole Joshua series is simply this. I want to briefly describe it to you and then we're going to hopefully respond like the people of God do or we're going to have the chance to anyway. So in Joshua 23, Joshua was on the platform talking to the people. Then some time went by. In Joshua 24, the Lord takes center stage and he addresses the people and sets the story straight. After verse 13, the Lord has finished speaking and Joshua comes up kind of like this. God was the preacher preaching to his people, setting the story straight. And then Joshua has to follow that as the worship leader, like walking up saying, we got to respond. You've probably heard one of the worship leaders at Harvest say, like, let's stand and respond. That's kind of what Joshua is doing. In the end of the whole book is all about worship and a decision. So when Joshua steps up in verses 14 through 28, after the Lord finishes speaking, Joshua calls the people in verses 14 and 15 to repentance, to turn away from everything else they're worshiping and only worship God. If you have heard me say the word only or alone this morning, it is intentional. The whole theme this morning, the title, Choose Today, that by his grace alone, power alone, protection alone, provision alone, we will worship him alone. And so Joshua calls the people to only worship him. 
He calls them to repentance, which literally means to turn away. It has this idea of a 180 degree turn. So basically if I'm facing the screen, repentance says I turn from that, I repent, and I'm going this way. Anytime I say 180, I want to say 160. Because when I was playing basketball in middle school, my friend's dad, George, may he rest in peace, said we need to do a 160. Got it wrong. And my whole childhood, we never let it down. I could tell by the room. It's like a, it was funnier to us in middle school, but it just popped into my head when I was preaching today, so I thought I would honor the memory of beloved George. But, but actually, the, it's not just a funny story, the 160, because it's how, it's how I often respond to calls for repentance, and it's why Joshua's having to talk to the people. So actually... St. George, rest in peace. Uh, I, I actually want to use that 160 here. Because here's what happens. We have the famous verses where Joshua says, choose today whom you will serve. Whether these gods are these gods, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How many people have that up in your house? Awesome. Okay, and I'm not, no issue with the, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But I've always been, I've always heard this wrong. It's like presented like, you can serve the false gods or you can solve the, serve the Lord. Choose today. Look closely in the text. There's two options and they're both bad. Which will you worship? The small g gods your ancestors wor- worship beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites? Basically, old school gods of traditionalism or new school gods of like the current culture. And then Joshua says in a third way, me and my house, my family and I will serve the Lord. The people reply, oh, wow. Well, based on you recasting the story, we we will serve the Lord too. And then Joshua shocks us. Like they, they reply, we will certainly not abandon the Lord to worship other gods in verse 16. Verse 19, Joshua comes to the people, you will not be able to worship the Lord because he's a holy and jealous God. What happened? Like, is there a, there's like a tone gap. There's something I'm missing. The people must have been like pushed back. Like, dad, why are you so upset? I said, I'd take out the trash. Like, what's, what's the deal? You said repent, worship only. We said we will. Then you come at us with, you will not be able to worship the Lord because he's a holy and jealous God. They were doing a 160 at best. You see, they conclude with, we will also worship the Lord. We too will worship the Lord. You see, the people of Israel and myself and most of you in this room, I'm assuming, We do this. We turn in our Christian faith like this. And here's what we we by default want. I'm just speaking from my own heart's experience, okay? We want everything of the current gods of this world, and then we want to come on Sunday and hear the story of God and what he's done for us. And we want to hold them both. And then we want to hold on to this easy believism that when we die, we'll go to heaven. And that is basically the problem of current American evangelicalism. And I'm a part of it. And it's, it's my problem too. 
So Joshua comes at them saying, God's a jealous God. He doesn't want mixed worship. Just as he saved you by grace and his power alone, he wants you to worship him alone. Him alone as in nothing else. I want to go through everything. I don't want to worship my, I don't want to find my identity in my job, my security in my money, and what my doctor said about my last physical that makes me feel good for 11 more months and I feel secure physically. And I, I, and, and I want to come and worship God and sing, Jesus, have it all. Oh, King Jesus, have it all. And take my free bracelet and go out the door and depend on money and other people for the rest of the week. He's calling us to go through everything else to God. And it doesn't mitigate anything else. It says, let me illustrate it. My family is a gift from God. Thank you, God, for them. May I serve you well as I serve them. Thank you, God, for giving us doctors and therapists and counselors. What a gift they are to help us. Thank you, God. But ultimately, I'm trusting that you would give them insight that you would give uh, a me a good working relationship with my physician and my counselor. My friends are an encouragement. I don't have to have them in a codependent way, but they're an encouragement to me as I follow God. Everything is God word. This is what we're being called to and hardly any of us do it. The bad news and good news as we end this morning is this. Joshua takes it to a pretty serious place. He says, if you don't do this, you're not going to be forgiven. God, God's not going to forgive you. And then he, what he does is he sets up a, a, a rock. Maybe it was already there. I don't I have to look closer. There's a rock. And he says, we're going to make a new covenant. You said you would worship the Lord only. I'm hearing you. And this rock is like recording the conversation. It's heard everything and let it bear witness to us. Because it's not just like, he didn't really believe it was hearing him. He's saying like, then whenever we see this rock, we'll remember the covenant. I'm coming to you this morning, reminding you and all of us that we stand in such a more dynamic place than that. Because instead of a rock, there's a cross. And Jesus formed a new covenant by his own blood with us, saying that every sin you've ever committed, have committed today, and ever will commit, has been forgiven and covered by his blood. And that your relationship with God is full and free and sure forever. And it's not tentative, like if I don't obey enough today, God will judge me. I have an anchor in Jesus Christ sunk deeply into the foundation of heaven that will never be moved and the other end of it is tied to me. And so I get to come to you this morning not with an empty thread of legalism, but I get to come to you saying how much more having everything been forgiven could we just let down the other idols? And come on, folks, they're not that hard. We're, we're, we're a predictable lot in the United States. We got them, Right? Where are you putting our hopes in money, sexuality, sexual gratification, your day off? Are you worshiping? You're just getting through your week to worship your day off. You're thinking if, that if you get married, that spouse is going to solve a problem, that your current spouse, if they change, it'll solve all your problems, that your kids will be who you weren't and you could live through your kids and find some satisf satisfaction. The political climate, maybe a certain political character will solve all our problems. Our hope is in a lot of common things, right? It's not that hard. And you might have some personal things. And I'm here this morning. We're going to invite the musicians up. 
So come on up, worship team. And I just basically want to have our own little covenant renewal ceremony centered around the work of Christ. And so Elsa is going to lead us in a time of confession. And I don't know if you grew up with a time of confession, but here's what confession does in a liturgy. It just allows us to say, I'm sorry I was wrong. And that is something you're not going to be taught to do in this world, right? Especially for us guys, it's like a hard thing, but there's a first time for everything. So in, the, in a minute, we're going to stand and we're going to corporately basically say, I've failed, I'm wrong, and I'm sorry. And we're going to hear that God has forgiven us and we're going to give thanks to him. And so I'd invite you to stand and engage with Elsa in this time.